Let's pray together. Father, if we are ever going to learn how to shift our focus from ourselves and our desires, our prejudices, our preferences out into the lost world, we're going to have to learn what you're doing in them as you work in the hearts of men. And I pray that today we will exchange our mirrors for windows and our windows for doors as we learn what your word says about the process of people coming from death to life from being lost to being found from being slaves to sin to service of Jesus Christ so Lord as we learn today a doctrinal principle may it be more than just theory may it be more than just theology may it be very practical as we see how you are working in the world around us so that we can join you in that work and understand that our role is in that process. First in Jesus' name. I sat in my office as I have more times than I want to remember. A young couple sitting across from me probably had been married She was sitting quietly weeping with a box of Kleenex in her lap. He, with his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands, would look up with red-rimmed eyes and say for the thousandth time, I'm so sorry. It was a mistake. I was wrong. I was weak. She tempted me and I'm so sorry. You could see as he would reach over and touch her on the knee or on the elbow that she would physically tense, almost as if this touch caused pain. And then he would look at me. And I would sit there, surprisingly for me, very dispassionately. My role was to be a listener. But at the same time, inside of me, praying, feeling the anxiety and the sorrow and the grief not just a pastor but putting myself in the role of what if that young lady were my daughter that young man my son and daughter vice versa what if that were my son and I would listen to him say again and again it will never happen to you I promise I'm so sorry And then, to be perfectly honest with you, the cynicism in me began to rise up. And I think to myself, buddy, the only person you're fooling right now is yourself. Because I have seen so many times where a young man would go down that kind of a road and he would be so apologetic and so sorry and so repentant. And he'd go right back down that road. You see, like most of us, I have a real suspicion people say, oh, I've changed. I'm not the same man I used to be. I'm not the same person. I've made this change. We live in a world that is very suspicious of people who push these wonderful changes that they made, these things that have happened in their lives, and we 
wonder if they're not trying to sell us a bill of goods. And we have almost gotten ourselves into the position that, that we just figure, you know, you might as well just boast about who you are because you're just never going to change. And even we as Christians find ourselves being very cynical, very suspicious, because deep down inside of us, we all hate change. Now, when I titled this sermon, We Hate Change, I really wasn't meaning it to be humorous. I, I really understand that in our nature, we do not like change. We like being the way we are, and we're suspicious, and we're skeptical. But at the same time, deep down inside of us, we feel this deep longing for change in our own lives. We see ourselves, and we know that we're not who we would want to be. We know we're not who we ought to be. And so on the one hand, we think, well, can I change? Can I be different? Because I know I wish I could. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to look at what the Bible says about change. Change, not just on the surface level, but change at the very depth of who we are. Change in our emotional and mental and spiritual DNA. Is that possible? In order to do that, we're going to have to ask five questions. And the reason I'm doing this today is because I want us to be thinking seriously about how we're going to interact with people as we focus out on the lost world, as we spend more time out there than we do in here. And we need to understand what is going on in their lives and whether or not they really can change as we minister with and to them. So rather than having you turn your Bibles to one particular passage, we're going to look at, my goodness, probably a dozen or more scripture passages over the course of the next 30 minutes. And so they're going to be on the screen. You're going to be able to see them. I would encourage you to jot them down on a piece of paper so that when you go home this afternoon or later this week, you want to do some more research, you can. The first question that we have to ask is, is change really even needed? A lot of people will say no. They'll say, you know what? We are, we are fine the way we are. Uh, what's the phrase of this generation? I'm good. I'm fine. And, and besides that, it's none of your business trying to push off what you think is right onto me and force me to change from who I am. There's a lot of people who just feel like that we don't really need to change. We just need to stay the way we are. We kind of like being settled into our routine and the way we do things. We like the role that we play. In life, But the Bible teaches us that change is absolutely needed. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we're in trouble. The scripture that was read a few minutes ago from Romans chapter 3 is kind of a, a foundational text on that. And we talked about it when we were talking about the gospel here a few weeks ago. And let me just read over for us again those verses that describe for us. Paul quotes out of the Old Testament and describes for us what our condition is like. He says, we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul brings that passage before us to remind us that we are in a terrible situation with these two twin truths. On the one hand, we are desperately in need of God's grace, God's undeserved love. 
on the other side of that coin, we also know that God owes his grace to no one. God is no man's debtor. And so we need this grace desperately, but God is not obligated to give it to us. And when he does, when the Holy Spirit begins to move us and convict us of our sin, we begin to realize, and often it's not a, a broad understanding, it's one particular sin. One particular act that suddenly we look at ourselves and we realize how absolutely desperate we are. And the Bible uses terms like the fact that we are in debt, that we are enslaved, that we are bankrupt, that we are dead. And so the Bible teaches us that absolutely change is needed. So that goes to the second question then. It may be needed, but is it possible? Is change really possible? Absolutely, positively change is possible. Again, a lot of people will say no. You might wish you could change, but you don't need that. It's not, it's not possible to change. Just be who you are. Accept who you are. Be proud of who you are. Don't try to change. Don't try to be any different. Just stay right like you are. And so we come around to the question of, is fundamental change just a fantasy? Is it just something that we long for, like we would long to be able to fly or to, uh, to, to defy gravity? Well, not according to the Bible. The Bible tells us very clearly that God made us with the capacity to know and love and serve him. And the Bible teaches that we should admit that we're on a course away from God and that we must change that course in order to return to him. And the best thing of all is the Bible teaches that this really can be done. God actually can give us a new life. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He talks about this new birth. And John writes about that. And the apostle Paul later on actually experiences in Acts chapter 9 when he's on the road to Damascus. And he has this tremendous new life come into him and change him. And from that point on, whether it's Romans 6 or Ephesians 2 or Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, we see again and again and again that a radical, fundamental change in our lives is possible. Not only is it needed, it's also possible. Well, then what kind of change do we need? <laughs> again, the world will tell you, you know what, the thing that you need, if you need to change anything, you need to change and have a deeper understanding of yourself. You just need to understand who you are so that you can be proud of who you are. Gandhi made the comment, made the statement, and taught all his life that the fundamental thing that, uh, that humans need is self-purification and self-actualization. Any change that occurs in us must reinforce us, not alter us or convict us or try to make us feel bad about ourselves. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that we need to turn. The word Repent in the Bible, one of the, one of the main words in the Greek language, literally means to make a turn. And we've talked about this before. It's turning from the way we're going and turning in a new direction. It's not adjusting our lives to ourselves. It's adjusting our lives to God and to God's will and to God's plan for us. That's the kind of change that's needed. You see, the first step, the first step to the one true God is to acknowledge that we are not that God, okay? We have to acknowledge the fact that we have been worshiping ourselves and changed from worshiping ourselves to worshiping God. We need change. Change is possible. And the change that is needed is to turn 
from going in a direction where we are serving ourselves and worshiping ourselves and being our own God, turn to God and worshiping Him and aligning ourselves with Him. Well, what does that involve? Okay, what do we do? How do we do that? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not mental acceptance. It's not just a decision that you make, a prayer that you pray, an aisle that you walk down, a card that you fill out. It's not some kind of over-glorified New Year's resolution. I remember for years as a younger believer, I really believed that, that everyone knew what it meant to be a Christian. They just had to make that mental decision to do it. But the Bible tells us that it takes a whole lot more than just making a mental decision in order to be a Christian, in order to be converted. You know, there are two types of people that I see a lot in my role as a pastor. Some of them are people who don't think they are believers when they really are. You know, every time, I mean, they know that believers are supposed to be, be released from the bondage of sin, and every time they fall prey to sin, they listen to what the devil says, and they're convinced, well, I must not be a Christian. I must not really be saved. Listen, my beloved, if you struggle with those kinds of things, let me assure you that the very fact that you struggle means that the Holy Spirit is in you and moving you toward more and more Christ-likeness. Trust your Father's ability to hold you and guard you and shape you. Paul himself said, O wretched man that I am because of sin. But he also knew that God was faithful. So if you're one of those people that struggles with doubt, let me encourage you. Let me assure you that you have a Heavenly Father whose Son said to us, no one can pluck us out of His hand. But the second type of person actually is a lot more troublesome to me and worries me and concerns me much more. And those are people who think that they are Christians, think that they have been converted, when all the evidence shows that they really have not. You see, there's a difference between being presumptuous and being assured. Well, why do you think I'm not a Christian? I was baptized. I was brought up in church. I've been to Sunday school. I've done all the things. How dare you say that you think I may not be a Christian? That's presumption. True assurance means I understand it in myself. I can't do that. But God is doing it through me. It's like that famous John Newton, the one that wrote Amazing Grace, the pastor that was a former slave ship captain and became a believer. He said one time, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be, yet I can truly say I am not what I once was, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, that's assurance. And if you're living a life presuming on God because of some action in your past, some mental decision that you made, beloved, you need to re-examine what's going on in your life. Some people believe it is some kind of a moral thing, a moral reserve, turn over a new leaf, try harder, do better. But the bottom line is, that conversion is really about just relying on Christ. Relying on Him. The real change in Christian conversion is involving relying less or actually none on ourselves and all on Christ. Relying on Christ and in Him alone. In real conversion, we begin to rest in Him, to trust Him and His merit before God because we know we have no merit of our own. See, my friends, we can never do enough things to earn God's favor. It doesn't matter how many Sunday school classes you teach, no matter how many worship services you attend, no matter how much money you put in the offering plate, we are broken and we are separated from God. 
Only God can forgive us. Only God can give us new life. And so true conversion is about us relying on Christ and not on ourselves. It's not a mental thing. It's not a moral thing. It's a trust thing. And that leads me to the biggest question, the one we're going to spend most of the rest of our time on this morning. And that is, how does this change really happen? How does it happen in our lives? Some people will tell you, we don't have to do anything. We can't save ourselves, and so we don't have to do anything. The great theologian Karl Barth reportedly once went to a Billy Graham crusade, and after the crusade, he was speaking to Dr. Graham, and he said, I appreciate so much your preaching. He says, I just wish you'd do one thing different. Rather than telling people how they ought to be saved, you ought to convince them that they already are saved, that God has already saved all of them. Well, that's universalism. That belief that, okay, if God's going to do what God's going to do, then he just saves everybody, and all we should do is just get out there and figure out how to live lives that are pleasing to him. But that's not what the Bible says at all. Jesus is constantly telling us things that we need to do. We need to repent. We need to turn. We need to follow him. We need to do different things in our lives. It's not all about just God. But on the other side, is it all about us? Is it just about, us? do we do everything to get our salvation? Well, that's, I don't think that's even possible. We're too broken. And you see, if we start trying to make it all about what we do for our benefit, and they say, you know, we try to manipulate people to make decisions with their minds or emotional decisions based on fear or desire, all we've done is become spiritual, spiritual self-help people. There are actually people out there on TV every week that say, listen, when you serve God, you're really serving yourself so that you can be a better person. They say that's a good thing. It's not. It's not all about us. It's about us and God working together as God works this saving faith in us. Listen, every other religion on the planet may teach self-salvation. But Christianity does not. And you can mark my word on that. Christianity is the only religion on the planet that does not teach that you can save yourself. See, here's the puzzle. And here's where things are going to get very interesting for the next 10 minutes. On the one hand, the Bible teaches us very clearly, very clearly, that conversion is a matter of our character. It's a matter of changing our hearts. But at the same time, the Bible also teaches that we will not begin to make these heart changes unless God himself first changes our hearts. He has to do the changing so that we can do the changing. And so in the book of Ezekiel, there is this wonderful verse, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. And we hear this very same thought in several places in the Bible. I just chose this one. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, where it says, God says, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. So God says, in order for you to become my people, I'm going to have to give you a new heart. And this happens. And this, so then Jesus in John chapter 6, when he is talking, says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so we see this this puzzle between our responsibility to respond to the offer of salvation with the work that God does to enable us to do that. I referred a minute ago 
to John chapter 3 when Jesus used the phrase, you must be born again. This whole concept of being born again, for those of you that are my age or about my age will remember when that was a very common phrase. It actually was in like the 1970s and, and, and people talk about being born again, being born again. That was not just some plot of the Southern Baptist Convention to get people to, to accept Jesus. It was right from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus taught that we must act. We must be born again. We must repent and believe the gospel. But he also taught that we can only act if God's actions are behind our own. We work, we act, because God is acting behind us, enabling us to do that. So we come to the book of Joel, for example. In Joel chapter 2, there's this passage where, and it is quoted twice in the New Testament, once by Peter in his, in his Pentecost message, and once by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it says, Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all God's people say, Amen. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's our responsibility, to call on the name of the Lord. But let's keep reading the verse. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivors, what? The Lord calls. So God calls us, and then we call on him, and salvation comes into our lives. It's not all God. It's not all us. It's working together. And so when you listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's at the beginning of, his first, of this first letter, to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about the foolishness of the, of the Greeks and, 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 and the Jews and their legalism, and he begins talking about what actually happens in salvation. And in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Now, I already sense in my spirit, even though I'm recording this the day before you hear it, that in some of your hearts, you're going to begin to raise up some barricades and say, okay, now, is this all about limited atonement and, and irresistible grace? Listen, we're not, we're not going there. That's another conversation for another day. I don't fully understand how these two things work together. I'm not sure that any of us with our human minds can. But I cannot deny that Scripture says that we work together with God and again and again it says that God calls people to himself who in, then respond, in response call on Christ for salvation and they become new creatures. And this usually, as a matter of fact, almost always happens through the power of God's word. Some of you will remember in the 19th Psalm, in Psalm 19 verse 7, it says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, meaning complete and whole renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. So in other words, it's God's word that speaks and enables and empowers and gives us the knowledge that we need to convict us so that we can come to Christ. God speaks through his word. And probably one of my favorite passages on that topic is in Isaiah 55. You quote it. We have it on plaques in our homes and other places. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 says this, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, providing seed to sow and food to eat, 
before I read the next verse, but he said, you know, the rain doesn't rain in vain. The water doesn't come down in vain. It comes down and it accomplishes its purpose to water the ground, to bring a crop. He says, in the same way that that happens, verse 11, so my word, God says, my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what? What I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Now, listen. Think. Would God make that promise if he were not the one ultimately responsible for the action that his word takes? Think what he's after. If he were not the one responsible for bearing the fruit, if he were not the one responsible for our conversion, you see, if it's all about us, if we are the end game of this thing, God would lose his control, his sovereignty over what he is doing. God would say, well, it's up to you. But God says it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. One of the great pictures in the Bible. And we see it in both the Old and New Testament. Is this idea that when we go out and share the gospel with our lost friends, when we go out and live out a gospel life, a, 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 an inviting life, a changed life, we're doing it in front of corpses. We really are. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2? Paul says, at the very beginning of chapter 2, he says, You, talking about the Ephesian believers in their past, before they came to Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you say, oh, well, pastor, that's just a metaphor. Well, sure, it's a metaphor. But I think that Paul is going back and remembering that wonderful story in Ezekiel 37. We won't turn there, but do you remember the story? In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is shown a valley full of skeletons, full of dried bones. skeletons. The bones are all separated. They're scattered over this huge valley, bones everywhere. All he can see, dry, parched, dead bones. All of a sudden, a wind comes and the bones begin to connect to one another. And the flesh comes on and they stand up, but they're still not alive. And then what does God tell Ezekiel to do? Here you've got all these people standing there, just dead corpses just standing there. No life in them at all. And God says to Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do, buddy. I want you to preach to those corpses. And as he began to preach, the Spirit of God swept across them and they suddenly <gasps> came to life. What an amazing picture of the power of God's Word. And not just the preaching behind the pulpit, but the preaching that you do every day with your life, the preaching you do every day when you say, hey, I'll pray for you, or hey, we talked about this at my church, or hey, you know what? God has helped me in that very same problem. You are declaring the truth of God's word, and that word has power. You remember the story in Acts chapter 10 about Cornelius? What an amazing story. I won't take time to go through all of it, but you know when Cornelius felt conviction, God could have just saved him right there on the spot, couldn't he? Well, sure he could have. He could have just brought new life into Cornelius' heart by the power of the Spirit. But what did God choose to do? God chose to send an angel all the way to Peter, who was in another city, who was praying on his rooftop, tell him that he needed to go to Cornelius' house, giving him permission to go into the house of a Gentile, share the gospel. Peter gets up, takes the trip, goes to Cornelius' house, goes in, shares the gospel, Cornelius gets saved. What an amazingly long way around getting one man saved. You see, that's the way God works. God could bring life to a person. 
purely by the written word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, all, and, and at times does. Let's just be honest. Sometimes he does. Sitting in a hotel room with a Gideon Bible. But more often than not, God chooses to take us into that process and get us out there doing his work with his word to people that he wants to come to know. And when we begin to understand that role, all of a sudden, the scriptures jumps at us. Let me just fly through three or four scripture passages just to show you what I'm talking about. Look at what he says in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit. See, God chose you as his children and then chooses to send you out to produce fruit in the lives of other people. But guess who's responsible for the fruit? Not us. That's God's responsibility. Look at Acts chapter 2 at the, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 2, verse 39, for the promise, Peter says, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And further over, in Acts chapter 16, you remember Paul has gone into Philippi, and he is preaching, and there's a woman there who hears the gospel. And look at what it says in chapter 16, verse 14. A woman named Lydia, a leader, a dealer, excuse me, in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God was listening. And listen to the next sentence very carefully. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. Now, was Paul any less responsible for sharing the word? Of course he wasn't. But as God preached the word, the Lord opened up Lydia's heart so that she could hear what he had to say. And finally, sum it up in 1 John. John, the beloved apostle, John, the one who emphasizes the love that God has for us, says in chapter 4, verse 10, this first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, he says, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the payment for our sins. You see, he says, look, this is not about us. This is about God expressing his love to us. So let me summarize. What have we seen? Number one, change is needed and possible. Change is one that comes from living these guilt-incurring lives of sin to living forgiven lives of trust in Christ. And our responsibility is to repent of our sins, to put our trust in him, to make him our commander, our master, our Lord. And this happens by God's grace, through the declaration of God's word, both in public settings like this and in our individual lives. And this is the way God has worked, whether it's Augustine or Luther or John Bunyan or, or C.H. Spurgeon or C.S. Lewis or you or me. We continue to see generation after generation of people coming to Christ. Well, so much for the idea that change is impossible. <laughs> Matter of fact, change is going on around us all the time. We're always changing. We're like those, remember those old Polaroid cameras we used to have? The kind where you take the picture and the, and the camera goes, and it pop out and you look at it and it's nothing but a gray square. And you go, well, this must not be right. What is this all about? And slowly by slowly, the color begins to come out. And you begin to see the thing that you were focused on. That's exactly what we're doing. You see, our lives, regardless of which direction we're going, whether we're going toward Christ or away from him, are constantly about this you know what shows up on that, on that square? The God that we serve. The one who is our ultimate commander. And in that picture, there's either going to be 
your face or Christ's. See, that's what conversion is all about. We are all being shaped into the one whom we serve. That's why I close by saying this to you. Maybe biblical change seems beyond you. It should, because it is. But here's the good news. The good news is that it's not beyond God. God can do God can take a wretched, sinful, God-hating, Christian-despising man like Saul of Tarsus God can take an evil, self-centered, megalomaniacal man like Manuel Noriega and turn him into a witness as he serves a life. God can take a self-centered, self-serving, self-seeking man like Steve Neal and change him into someone who lives his life serve his Lord, serve him his Our role is to be out there sharing, telling, focusing on him and watching as God does his work never thinking that it's all about us. It's all dependent on our effort, our ability, our talent, how well we know the gospel, how well we know the Bible verses. God just says, you I'll go with you. I'll work behind you and enable you. So that that one Let's pray. Father, this is a tough concept for us. I don't think there's one of us, either one of these preachers that can hear this this morning and not fully grasp how salvation is dependent on our response to the gospel, but at the same time, it cannot happen without your power. How you can be sovereign and yet still give us the ability to choose. But you teach that in your word, and our responsibility is to just accept it in faith, even though we don't understand it, just like we don't understand the truth. The one thing we do understand is this. You are in control. You long son as their savior. And you have commanded us to go forward. You have commanded us to focus our lives on those who have not yet heard the gospel and be out there as your hands and your feet, your service, declaring your word so that it will not return void, so that it will accomplish the work that you have planned for it to accomplish. The lives of those who hear and see and question us and walk with us and learn from us. So Father, I pray that we will continue to have a biblical understanding of what salvation really is, what conversion really is, so that we can be a healthy church, not built around manipulating and controlling, but built around serving and releasing the results 